Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Clop Hill is a centuries-old village in Bedfordshire, England. But unlike neighboring towns, it isn't known for its countryside charm. It's notorious for hauntings. According to legend, Clop Hill's most prominent church was built facing west instead of east. This meant it was turned away from God, and according to locals, it opened a portal to hell. The supposedly haunted church cast a shadow over the small town. It might have even inspired the name of a local landmark. Along the side of the A6, a highway that runs through the area, there's a rest stop. Since about 1925, people have called it Dead Man's Hill. It seemed like a playful nickname until 1961. That year, Dead Man's Hill lived up to its moniker. It wasn't just home to ghosts and demons anymore. It was the site of a real-life murder. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the A6 murder. Today, we'll talk about the discovery of the victims and the nationwide hunt for their attacker. Next week, we'll reveal the main suspect's fate, which was hotly debated for over 40 years. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On the morning of August 23, 1961, 18-year-old John Kerr wandered down a stretch of the A6 highway near Clop Hill, England. It was about 6.45 a.m., and the sun had just begun to rise. John had taken a summer job conducting a traffic census, which meant he had to stand by the side of the road for hours, counting how many cars passed by. The work was extremely monotonous. Until a shout broke through the early morning silence. He looked up and saw a local farmer dashing down the road, eyes wide with fear. The man yelled that there were two bodies down the road, a man and a woman. The woman was just barely hanging on to life, and she needed help fast. John immediately rose to the occasion. He sprinted along the A6 towards the bodies. Then he remembered something disturbing. Locals called this place Dead Man's Hill. Just as he pushed the thought out of his mind, he came upon two people lying motionless on the ground. The man had been shot in the head, and the woman was badly wounded. Her words came in a slow, pained whisper. (laughs) My name is Valerie Story. A man, he, he held us 
gunpoint <laughs> made us drive around for hours. He shot us. <laughs> John knew he needed the police, but he was also afraid Valerie wouldn't live long enough for help to arrive. She needed to tell her story before it was too late, so he knelt beside her and listened. Straining to speak, Valerie explained that she was 22 years old. Her companion, Michael Gregston, was 36. They'd spent the previous evening at a pub in Taplow, about 50 miles south of Dead Man's Hill. Afterward, they drove to a cornfield, where they often went to talk. Suddenly, a man with a cockney accent knocked on their window. He held up a gun, forced his way into their car, and robbed them. Then he threatened to shoot if they didn't take him wherever he wanted to go. He made Michael drive around aimlessly for hours. They ended up on the A6. Eventually, the man forced Michael to pull off the road and park at Dead Man's Hill. Still sitting in the car, he shot Michael twice in the head, killing him instantly. Then he raped Valerie in the back seat. When he was finished, he dragged her out of the vehicle and shot at her roughly ten times. Five bullets struck her upper body. Likely thinking Valerie was dead and there were no witnesses to his crime, the man stole Michael's car and sped away. Valerie estimated her assailant fled a few hours earlier, meaning she'd been lying on the side of the road, bleeding and traumatized all that time. John was horrified at what she'd been through. He couldn't even think about catching the mystery man yet. He was too focused on saving Valerie's life. He ran back up the A6, flagged down a passing car, and asked the driver to call the police. Before long, lights and sirens arrived on the scene. Officers cordoned off the area. At the same time, paramedics loaded Valerie onto a stretcher. From the back of the ambulance, Valerie fed the police information. She told an officer that Michael's car, the one the attacker had stolen, was a gray Morris Minor, circa 1956. Authorities put out an emergency bulletin asking citizens to be on the lookout for the vehicle. But that wasn't all the information they needed. Just before EMTs took Valerie to the hospital, the officer realized someone should be contacted about Michael's death. Miss Story, I'm sorry to bother you with this, but I need to know who I ought to contact about your boyfriend. Oh, um, well... I know it's hard, ma'am. How about Michael's parents? Could we call them? You should call Janet. Is that his mother? <laughs> She's his, his wife. The officer had assumed Michael and Valerie were a couple, but they'd been engaged in an affair. Another detective was sent to deliver the news to Janet. She was horrified and heartbroken to hear of her husband's death, but the fact that he'd been with another woman didn't come as a shock. She'd known about Valerie and Michael's relationship for some time, and she and Michael were in the process of separating. But Janet was still legally married to Michael, so she rushed to Dead Man's Hill to identify his body. 
Beyond that, though, she couldn't do much to help the investigation. Over the next few hours, police managed to locate six cartridges and several bullets, but the murder weapon was nowhere to be found. The killer must have taken the gun with him when he fled. And that didn't give the detectives very much to work with. They needed more information from Valerie, so they headed to the nearby Bedford Hospital where she was being treated. The doctors who examined Valerie had already made two key discoveries. First, they found traces of semen on Valerie's body. DNA testing wasn't available at the time, but police could analyze the semen to determine the source's blood type. Second, if Valerie was to have any hope of survival, she needed extensive surgery. Doctors would attempt to remove the bullets from her body and stitch up her wounds, but it might take more than one procedure. As nurses prepped Valerie for her first operation, she gave another interview to police. She admitted that she and Michael were having an affair. She also repeated everything she told John earlier, but this time she added a detailed description of the killer. Valerie said the man was around 25 or 30 years old and stood no more than five feet, six inches tall. He had brown hair, large blue eyes, and he spoke with a Cockney accent. The officer radioed his colleagues and they updated their bulletin to include a description of the gunman. The population was now asked to be on the lookout for this man and Michael's car. Meanwhile, Valerie's parents were notified about her condition. They were told her prognosis was grim. One of the bullets had gone clean through her neck and the wound was still bleeding profusely. Another had hit her shoulder and traveled down to her spine. For Mr. and Mrs. Story, the situation was worse than horrifying. Just the night before, Valerie and Michael had been at their house for tea. Now they were on their way to the hospital, praying for their daughter's survival. And law enforcement was just as anxious. A killer was still on the run, and Valerie might be the only person who could identify him. But without knowing if Valerie would live or die, officers had to keep searching on their own. Authorities had local news stations broadcast descriptions of the assailant, the stolen car, and the murder weapon. And that evening, a man nearly 50 miles away found a clue. Coming up, authorities investigate new evidence. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at ParCast.com cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. 
Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. And now, back to our story. At around 6.45 p.m. on August 23, 1961, a man took his dog for a walk along the streets of Ilford, a town in Essex. Like almost everyone in England, he'd heard the news coverage of a gruesome crime that had taken place the previous night. Broadcasters were calling it the A6 murder. 36-year-old Michael Gregston and 22-year-old Valerie Story had been kidnapped, shot, and left on the side of the highway. The gunman stole Michael's car, a gray Morris Minor, and took off. Authorities asked for help locating the killer, the gun, and the vehicle. The man had gone out with his dog, expecting nothing more than an evening stroll. But then, he saw a car that matched the description, parked on the road right in front of him. It was dented, and the license plate had been purposely obscured. He sprinted to the nearest phone and called the police. Around the same time, another man named Sidney Lawrence sat in his flat listening to the news on the radio. The anchor was, of course, discussing the A6 murder and the stolen Morris Minor. Sidney looked out his window. He scanned the busy street below, searching for a gray car that seemed out of place. And to his surprise, he saw one. Sidney ran downstairs. By the time he got outside, a police officer was already walking toward the vehicle, responding to the dog walker's call. Excuse me, do you live here? Uh, yes, sir. Is this the car? The one from the news? I believe so. How long has it been parked here? Uh, all day, I think. Does that strike you as odd? Mm, not really. The Redbridge tube station is just over there. People park here, then take the train to work. So, the offender could have done that too. Parked here, hopped on the tube, and gone anywhere at all. Through the window of the car, the officer could already see that the driver's seat and the floor behind it were covered in blood. But to find any other clues, the vehicle would have to be examined by experts. The detective arranged to have it photographed, then towed to Scotland Yard for analysis. And right as forensic experts started checking out the car, another clue emerged. The following night, August 24th, an empty bus pulled into a garage in South London. A custodian climbed inside. He scanned the lower level for garbage, then went to the top deck. Near the very back of the bus, he raised his seat and felt around beneath it. His hand passed over something solid, covered in fabric. He tried to yank it out, but it was heavier than he expected. When he finally pulled it free, he realized it was actually a few items wrapped in a handkerchief. Curious, he untied the cloth and gasped. It was a loaded 38 revolver and five boxes of ammunition. Because the A6 murder had been all over the news, the cleaner knew that this was the type of weapon the killer had used. He called the authorities straight away. Officers examined the gun and noted it had recently been fired. 
They bagged the handkerchief, revolver, and bullets and took everything back to the station. At this point, it had been just over 36 hours since Valerie and Michael had been found, and law enforcement's collection of evidence just kept growing. Forensic analysts confirmed the car that was parked in East London belonged to Michael. They found gunpowder and cartridges inside, which they planned to compare with the revolver from the bus. However, what authorities really wanted was another interview with Valerie. They needed to get a more thorough description of the killer's behavior and appearance. But Valerie was still in the hospital. She pulled through her first surgery, which gave doctors hope. To everyone's relief, she'd almost certainly live. However, one of the bullets damaged her spine, and Valerie would spend the rest of her life paralyzed from the chest down. After two more days of recovery, on August 26th, Valerie was well enough to speak in a whisper and to have visitors. She had a tearful reunion with her parents. Then, doctors gave her permission to speak with the authorities. Detectives were ready with what they called an identikit. It consisted of dozens of different facial features drawn on transparent slips. Victims were expected to sift through all of these and select the images that most resembled their assailant. Then a sketch artist would create a drawing of that face, which would ideally look just like the culprit. Over the next few hours, Valerie helped detectives cobble together a picture of her attacker. Yes, that looks like him. Somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. Pale, very pale. He was wearing a nice suit. Shall we add a collar? Good. Now his eyes, like saucers, icy blue. I'll always remember those eyes staring right at me. Investigators created two composite images, which were both sent to the press. Before long, they were flooded with tips from people who believed they'd seen the A6 killer. I saw him, officer, two days ago. He was washing his clothes in a pond up by Epping Forest. He came to my house in Liverpool and he stole my bicycle right from the yard. He was on the tube. He was on the bus. He was skipping down the street. He's a madman. It's me. I'm the A6 murderer. <laughs> gotcha! <laughs> For two weeks, authorities fielded calls and followed up on leads. Although tips came from all over the country, police focused their efforts in London. Because Michael's car and the gun had both been found in the city, investigators wondered if the killer had stayed there around the time of the attack. Detectives reached out to hotels in the area, asking if anyone had seen a suspicious guest during that time. It was a bit of a long shot, but it paid off. Sometime in late August, a manager at the Alexandra Court Hotel in North London called Scotland Yard. I'm not sure if this will be helpful, as I'm calling about a man who arrived at the hotel the day after the murder, but uh, since then, he's barely left his room. He just stays locked up in there, pacing back and forth all day. He checked in with 
the name of Frederick Durant. Maybe you should look into him? With that, the police had their first real lead on the A6 killer. Coming up, officers confront the mysterious Frederick Durant. Now back to the story. On August 27, 1961, authorities finally got a potential name for their suspect in the A6 murders, Frederick Durant. They went to London's Alexandra Court Hotel to question him. The man immediately struck detectives as suspicious. He checked into the hotel under a pseudonym. He admitted his real name was Peter Louis Alphon. But even though Peter seemed shifty, he didn't match the description of the A6 killer. He was older than the man Valerie described. He was also fairly tall, and he didn't have blue eyes or a Cockney accent. Two very important details. It seemed like a dead end, but authorities kept their fingers crossed, and in the meantime, they checked in with their ballistics team. Firearms experts determined the bullets and cartridges at the crime scene, as well as the gunpowder and cartridges found in Michael's car, all came from the revolver found on the bus. That meant that they had the murder weapon. All they needed was the gunman himself. They hoped they were getting close, but days passed with no helpful information. Finally, on September 11th, detectives received another important tip. Hello, my name is Robert Crocker. I manage the Hotel Vienna in West London. I'm calling because I I was in one of our rooms today and I saw a chair that needed repairing, so I decided... how is this related to the A6 murder case? Uh, Well, uh, I found two cartridge cases hidden under the chair. I was in the army. Uh, I recognized them as 38 cartridges. That's the same ammunition the killer used, yes? This was today? You realize the murder happened over two weeks ago? Yes, but I believe a man matching the suspect's description stayed in this particular room the night before the crime occurred. August 21st, right? What was the guest's name? He called himself J. Ryan. <sighs> Thank you. We'll be sure to look him up. Scotland Yard's ballistics team examined the cartridges from the hotel room. Incredibly, they were also confirmed to be from the revolver found on the bus. With all this information, the police assembled a rough timeline. They believed the killer went from the Hotel Vienna in London to the A6 in Clophill, and then back to London to dispose of the gun on the bus. But for whatever reason, instead of investigating Jay Ryan... The lead man on the case, Detective Superintendent Bob Acott, stayed focused on Peter Alphon. After speaking with him at the Hotel Vienna, they'd somehow lost track of him. So authorities released a plea to the media asking Peter to come forward. They claimed he was an important witness, though news outlets still treated him as a suspect. Then... Just before midnight on September 22nd, a man in a crisp blue blazer strolled up to the front desk at Scotland Yard. Pardon me, officer. I'm Peter Alphon. I believe my presence has been requested by your detectives. 
ACOT questioned 31-year-old Peter Alphon for several hours. The detective learned Peter had no fixed address or steady job. But he appeared to have an alibi for the night of the murder. I've told you everything already. Sure you have. But tell me again. Walk me through your day on August 22nd, the night of the murder. (sighs) I spent the evening with my mother. We went out around 9.30 p.m., and I got back to my room at the Hotel Vienna about two hours later. I didn't leave again until noon the next day, when I checked out. Acott held Peter in custody while he spoke to the Hotel Vienna staff. Initially, two employees confirmed Peter's alibi. But then they told police they'd been mistaken. They couldn't actually be sure that Peter was in his room when he claimed to be. Detectives also contacted Peter's mother. She said she and her son had spent an evening together, but she couldn't remember exactly what day it had been. That meant nobody could definitively prove Peter was innocent, and the police disagreed about what to do next. Acott, forgive me if I'm overstepping, but I think we ought to let Peter go. He has an alibi, plus he's missing some key aspects of Miss Dory's description. He doesn't have icy blue eyes. He doesn't have blue eyes at all. And he doesn't have a Cockney accent. Then why was he acting so strange after the murder? Staying in his room, pacing around? It's the behavior of a guilty man. I'm going to ask him to take part in the lineup. Peter agreed to ACOT's request, and Scotland Yard arranged for a number of men to gather at the hospital. Valerie was still recovering from another surgery, but she insisted she was well enough to participate. Before the lineup, Valerie was told to identify her attacker, implying that he was definitely amongst the group of men. Valerie looked the suspects over and chose the one she believed most closely resembled him. It wasn't Peter Alphon, but it wasn't the right man either. Police already knew the person that Valerie chose couldn't be the culprit. He was just there as a distraction. Valerie was mortified by her mistake. She hadn't realized that picking nobody was an option, so she'd accidentally accused an innocent man. After this ordeal, Peter was finally allowed to go free, but he made it clear that he wasn't happy about what police had put him through. I just want to say, I volunteered to help with this investigation, and they took advantage of my goodwill. I should have been thanked for my service. Instead, I was kept in police custody. This has ruined my reputation. Everybody will point me out for the rest of my life and say I was suspected of murder. D.S. Acott likely had no sympathy for Peter. The detective simply kept moving forward onto his next lead. He wanted to find the other man who'd stayed at the Hotel Vienna on August 21st, the one who left the bullet cartridges in his room. The hotel said he'd checked in with the name J. Ryan and listed an address in Kingsbury. Earlier in September, detectives had been dispatched to the home. Hello. I'm looking for a Mr. J. Ryan. Is he home? Who? J. Ryan. I'm sorry, you have the wrong house. Perhaps I was given an old address? Or... There's no one by that name here or anywhere in the neighborhood. Someone lied to you. 
Clearly, J. Ryan wasn't in Kingsbury. Investigators dug a bit deeper. Through a complicated series of clues, they traced the name J. Ryan to a man who was traveling around Ireland. Using hotel registers, letters, and locals' testimony, they learned he was also using a pseudonym. His real name was James Hanratty. James was a 25-year-old petty criminal. And unlike Peter, he fit Valerie's description of her attacker. According to law enforcement's files, he was about five foot six with light blue eyes and a Cockney accent. But they had no idea where he was. Officers continued to publicize Valerie's composite sketch and fanned out across the country in search of their new suspect. Before long, an 18-year-old woman named Gladys Deacon contacted police. She said she was friends with James Hanratty, and she might be able to help police track him down. They made a plan. The next time James phoned Gladys, she'd notify the police, and they'd trace the call. It took a few weeks, but on October 11th, James contacted Gladys all the way from Blackpool, a seaside town about 300 miles from London. By that night, authorities zeroed in on his exact location, Blackpool's Stevonia Cafe. James was sipping tea when an officer approached him. James Hamratty. Who's asking? You're under arrest for the murder of Michael Gregston and the rape and attempted murder of Valerie Story. Come with me. What? No, I don't know any James. My name's Peter Bates. Ah, the jig's up, Hanratty. Police escorted James to a cell at Scotland Yard. As DS Bob Acott prepared to question him, he felt certain he'd gotten it right this time. In his mind, James Hanratty was a killer. But the story wasn't as clear-cut as Acott hoped. In the coming years, Scotland Yard would hear not one, but two men confess to the A6 murder. And the real truth wouldn't come out for another four decades. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the A6 murder. We'll follow the lengthy debate about who the killer was and eventually learn his true identity. For more information on the A6 murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Long Silence by Paul Stickler extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Ellie Reed and edited by Karis Allen and Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Drew Lawn, Brian Kim McCormick, Alastair Murden, Cameron Nicod, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 
Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash Colts. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait, there are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.